You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. China stands ready to have communication and dialogue with the United States to promote the realization of a soft landing on the Afghan issue. However, the United States cannot, on the one hand, deliberately constrain and suppress China while harming China's legitimate rights and interests. On the other hand, it must also count on China's support and cooperation. That's a readout of the phone call held on Monday this week between U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Two days later, the dramatic scenes from the Kabul airport were beamed around the world, and with it, a collective sense of deja vu as images of people desperately trying to board planes and helicopters airlifting people from the tops of buildings evoked memories of the fall of Saigon and the U.S. military exit from Vietnam. Hello, and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Chad Bray from the Business Desk here at the South China Morning Post. And while countries like the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, who sent troops to Afghanistan for nearly two decades, now scramble to get their people, as well as the Afghan interpreters and officials who helped them onto planes and airlifted to safety, they're also dealing with tens of thousands of people seeking to claim asylum from the Taliban. And Beijing stands on the periphery, waiting to establish relations with a new government formed by the Taliban, having spent the past months positioning itself as the new diplomatic and economic partner for Afghanistan. We're going to hear from our Beijing correspondent, Sarah Zheng, about how this week's events in Kabul have been portrayed by China's state-controlled media, what Beijing has planned for its relationship with Afghanistan, and how this issue is being used to fuel discussion over the future of U.S. involvement in Taiwan. And with this week's dramatic, often shocking images, you may have missed the fall of another government of a country that is arguably of far greater strategic importance. I'm talking about Malaysia, the country that straddles the world's most economically vital shipping lanes and is now in a caretaker mode after the shock resignation of its prime minister after just 17 months in office. Malaysia is juggling its crucial economic relationship with China on land while offshore in the South China Sea. There are rising tensions as Chinese ships and aircraft probe its airspace and harass its oil and gas operations. We'll hear from our senior Asia correspondent, Bavan Jepragas, on what to expect from Malaysia's constitutional crisis as it plays out amidst a much bigger crisis, the Delta variant of COVID. A lot to talk about. On with the show. Let me take you back three weeks to our episode discussing the meeting between China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, and U.S. Deputy Secretary of State, Wendy Sherman, in the city of Tianjin. Three days after that meeting, Wang Yi and his team had another face-to-face, as well as a friendly photo op with a senior delegation from the Taliban, including the group's co-founder. With what we've seen this week in Kabul, it certainly gives a clearer perspective on China's approach to Afghanistan. And perhaps it begs the question, how will China use the retreat of the U.S. from Central Asia as a lever in other regions of the world? Sarah Jung is in our Beijing bureau and has been filing stories all week on this subject. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me. Now, this week, there there have been a lot of scenes we've seen of the Kabul airport, of people flooding onto the runway and clinging onto planes as they took off. It's, It's dominated Western media coverage. Now, did it play out the same way in China in state media? 
Yes, so Chinese state media has been more than eager to highlight the chaos of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and to consistently blame the entire situation on this, what they say is hasty and irresponsible exit of the U.S. And they've actually been quite smug in pointing out the hypocrisies of U.S. foreign policy actions there and, you know, the failures of the U.S.'s longest war, nearly two decades in Afghanistan and then fleeing in such a dramatic fashion. So it's It's really been a way for an opportunity for China to push this narrative that the U.S. is the world's strongest power is now in decline. And those very horrific images and videos we saw from Kabul um, were a really convenient way to do that. Yeah, and I noticed on CCTV this week that, that there was sort of uh, this image where they took the fall of Saigon and the helicopters uh, taking people out of the U.S. Embassy in 1975 uh, against the helicopters flying over Kabul. It seems like the state media has really tried to to, to make that uh, illusion between Vietnam and, and what's happening in Af- Afghanistan. Is that the impression you're getting? Yes, definitely. That I mean, that is also beneficial for their narrative to say, look, the U.S. failed another war. This is just more proof that U.S. imperialistic ambitions, whether it was in Vietnam at the time or now in Afghanistan, are wrong and will fail. Um, and to sort of juxtapose that with the Chinese way, which is what they say is a policy of non-interference, you know, saying we won't go in and interfere and, and wage war in all these countries. So really that contrast for them is, is something that Chinese state media likes to pick up on. And w- w- was there any kind of linkage that, that sort of state media was making to sort of the U.S. presence in, in Central Asia uh, to also that, you know, their support of, of Taiwan and, and, and sort of being involved in a region that, that's really not home to them? Definitely. There was a considerable effort to draw this parallel, um, you know, of the U.S. abandoning the Afghan government and its allies there and saying that this would also be applicable to Taiwan. Uh, we saw that Hu Xijing, the infamous editor of state-run tabloid Global Times, he was really happy to make this comparison. And he even joked that Taiwan's authorities must be trembling now and they should take this chance to order a People's Republic of China flag. So it's easier to surrender when the time comes to Chinese people's Liberation Army forces. So, of course, this means there are also fears in Taiwan, you know, watching what's happening with Afghanistan. And Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, she came out and said, you know, what we need to do is to be stronger, more united, more resolute in defending ourselves, and that it's not an option to just do nothing and rely on others for support. Um, But this parallel, of course, is in Beijing's favor to draw. There are lessons here for Taiwan, but the two are still quite different. I mean, the U.S. has far more significant interest in Taiwan than it did in Afghanistan. Its security commitment to Taiwan, it's directly linked to its alliances in the region, its broader interests in the region. And it doesn't need to do the same kind of nation building or resistance against a domestic militant threat that needed to do in Afghanistan. Yeah. And in your piece this week, you you mentioned how the uh, Chinese embassy had warned uh, Chinese citizens they should leave Afghanistan. It was one day after uh, Wang Yi met with the Taliban uh, back in July. Is the Chinese embassy still open? I I know the Russian embassy has, has made a big deal about how they're staying open in Kabul. 
Yeah, so the Chinese ambassador actually just sent some photos from the embassy saying that it's still operating as usual. The Chinese flag is still proudly waving above their embassy. So obviously to, to again have this stark contrast to the U.S. and other missions scrambling to evacuate their personnel and their foreign nationals um, that resulted in some of the uh, airport scenes we just talked about. But it's still not entirely business as usual for the Chinese side, even if they want to say that, because after the warnings they had earlier, most of the Chinese citizens in Afghanistan have cleared out and they have suspended their consular services. Uh, just a few days ago on Tuesday, they said that they would completely suspend their consular hotline. What about refugees fleeing from Afghanistan? I know we've seen a number of West, Western governments sort of talking about opening up uh, opening up their countries for refugees, Germany, the UK. But, but ha- have we seen a stream of people trying to leave Afghanistan and, and make their way to China? I think what's interesting is that Chinese state media and diplomats have been very keen to say, oh, look, like the U.S. has created the situation where there are so many refugees and now they're only taking a limited number in their Western countries. But at the same time, quite silent on whether China will take refugees itself. And historically, China has not been open to refugees fleeing from war-torn situations. So this is not something that we expect to see this time. Yeah, and and if we if we look at a map of the region, we, we see that sort of the eastern tip of Afghanistan sort of just barely touches the western border of Xinjiang province in the Himalayan mountains. Now, has uh, Beijing made any moves to sort of uh, send military reinforcements in response to developments? I, I know they've been concerned about what they say are terrorists coming over from Afghanistan into the region. Right, exactly. So Chinese analysts we've talked to have said that they've been preparing for some of this fallout since the U.S., you know, in April announced that they were going to withdraw by the September 11th deadline. So we talked to this one researcher based in Beijing, Zhou Zemin. He said that the Chinese army had reinforced its defenses along its western border with Afghanistan, you know, several months ago, since since knowing that the U.S. was going to pull out. Um, but on the, the point you made about, you know, Chinese concerns of terrorism, that is really one of the primary fears that China has with this whole situation in Afghanistan is, will the instability there be an opportunity for extremist groups and separatist groups that want to target China? And in particular, this is means a group of Uyghur militants that Beijing has blamed for unrest and violence in Xinjiang, which they call the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, ETIM. Um, So the Chinese foreign ministry has consistently said, we don't want Afghanistan to become a hotbed for terrorism, you know, an opportunity for ETIM. And they've sought out reassurances from the Taliban that this won't happen. This is what Taliban leaders have you know, tried to say when they met with Wang Yi and, and other Chinese officials in Tianjin earlier. And they've been sort of repeating that consistently since taking control. But of course, China is still not entirely sure if they can believe these reassurances yet. And, and we'll have to see what happens, given that the Taliban is not exactly known for being a good faith actor. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that we've had sort of this situation where, where it was Russia's problem in Afghanistan, then it was the U.S.'s problem. And now it, it may very well be China's problem. Um, the, the U.S., uh, the U.K. and India and, and other countries have indicated they will not recognize the Taliban as, as the new government of Afghanistan. Has Beijing made a position on this at this point? You know, do we know if they're going to officially recognize the Taliban as being the the new government of, of the country? 
China has also said that it will wait on recognition. It, I mean, it certainly would not be the first to step out and recognize them. They've said that, you know, it's customary practice that they would recognize the government once the government is formed, that they respect the Afghanistan people's, uh, Afghanistan sovereignty, people's desires and intentions, that they hope that the Taliban and other factions can work together to build what they say, you know, an open and inclusive and representative uh, government. So it's still remains to be seen. Just as, as, as we draw to a close, uh, Sarah, I, I wanted to ask you about um, sort of the, the natural resources in, in, in Afghanistan, if there's been much discussion about sort of Beijing's plans. So, you know, certainly they, they have, uh, you know, some would argue poppies as, as being their major resource, but actually they have lithium, they have a number of things that are very valuable in technology. So I, I'm curious from your end what you're hearing about sort of that discussion. There, there's been a little bit in the Western media about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess besides the the terrorism concern from China, the other main concern that they have is about the opportunity for investments in in Afghanistan, especially since they have made very significant investments in Pakistan, which is just neighboring Afghanistan, along its Belt and Road Initiative. So they wouldn't want any of the turmoil to affect those projects. But also they want to see if there's an opportunity to expand what they have now in Afghanistan. There's some investments in mining and industrial sectors, some infrastructure, but definitely still opportunity for them to expand that. Um, That, of course, will depend on what sort of government we'll see next, um, how the Taliban will will you know engage with China going forward. But it's also what analysts are saying in the Taliban's interests to work with China because right now they need to rebuild the country and they need to focus on economic development and reconstruction. And this is what China can help with. You know, China can come in with its developmental aid, infrastructure, that kind of thing, and help to spur economic development. So on the Taliban's end, that's why they would want to engage with China as well. Well, thank you, Sarah. That's, uh, you know, it's a fascinating discussion, and it's going to be something that's been going on for for months, if not years. Um, So thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Avanja Bragas is one of our senior correspondents uh, for Asia. This week, he's been filing nonstop coverage and analysis about the events that are happening in Malaysia. Well, if you follow him on Twitter, you can track how the situation escalated from last week to where we are today. Bavan, welcome. Uh, and I want to start with a very basic question. What just happened in Malaysia? Prime Minister Muhyiddin Yassin this week resigned after weeks of pressure. His government, uh, the Perikatan National Bloc, uh, lost its majority parliamentary support. And uh, hence, he was asked by the king uh, to to effectively resign, and he did so on Monday. But for a Western audience, you know, uh, many people were familiar with two main figures, the opposition leader, Anwar Ibrahim, and the 96-year-old former prime minister, Dr. Mahathir Mohamad. And so how did they fit into this week's events? Anwar and Mahathir are indeed uh, key players in, in what's happening. Mohidin, Anwar, Mahathir... Uh, Najib Razak, the former Prime Minister, these are all the key heavyweights in Malaysian politics. Uh, what has happened essentially is that Muhyiddin lost power because Najib Razak, whose AMNO party is part of his government, decided to pool his support. So Muhyiddin's government lost its uh, parliamentary backing. 
Uh, and so on the other side, there are these players, Mahathir and Anwar, who are part of a, an, the current opposition bloc. They have been trying to cobble together an alternative government uh, to take over after Moedin stepped down, but that has not transpired uh, as of today. And can, can you give a sense of sort of the political wheeling and dealing that's been going on? You know, if, if I can quote from a line from one of your colleagues' stories, it was, quote, when does political dealmaking cross the line into criminality, end quote. So this question came into play because as a last-ditch effort, Mohidin last Friday uh, had offered the opposition a slew of concessions, including, uh, you know, major institutional reforms such as term limits on the prime ministership and uh, reducing the voting age and additional funds for the opposition MPs. Uh, he did this because he was seeking a form of unity government, you know, to, to continue uh, to stay in power until elections are called, you know, further down the road. He he had been pitching himself as the, as the wartime prime minister and he said that, you know, collapsing the government now would be uh, bad for the country. The opposition, of course, uh, immediately rebuffed this uh, effort as, you know, a form of open corruption they want him gone immediately, saying that he is the cause of the country's, uh, you know, really uh, worsening COVID-19 crisis and that a new prime minister and a new government, no matter who it is, will do a better job. And uh, is there a clear direction about what happens next? Right. So this week, uh, the process has uh, is underway to pick a new prime minister. Uh, so in Malaysia... Uh, like in constitutional monarchies in, in, in Europe and in Britain, for example, the, the head of state plays a major role in, in this kind of situation where there's a resignation midterm. So right now, uh, what is happening is that the king, Sultan Abdullah, Sultan Ahmad Shah, has prerogative powers to decide uh, who has majority support uh, to form a new government. To help him, uh, uh, he is, uh, has conducted a secret ballot among the country's 220 MPs uh, uh, to, to ascertain who uh, has the backing of at least 111 MPs. That is a simple majority, right? From what we gather today, the AMNO party's vice president, Ismail Sabri Yaakob, who is also the outgoing deputy prime minister and uh, defense minister, uh, a two-decade veteran of politics is the front-runner to be Malaysia's ninth prime minister. Uh, today, the king is meeting some 114 MPs individually uh, to ascertain whether they back Ismail Sabri because from the secret ballot, these 114 had uh, declared that they backed uh, Ismail Sabri. So, so just to, you know, thinking about UK politics, do, does this mean we would have a coalition type government or do you, do you think there would be an outright government for, for his party? So the 114 MPs who are reportedly backing Ismail Sabri are from different parties. Essentially, they are coming together to form a, a new government without coalition agreement or any kind of uh, confidence supply agreement. They are just saying that they will back the prime minister and I think it will be up to him now to set a common platform and that's where it gets tricky, right? Uh, that's been the case for Malaysian politics uh, for the last four or five years. 
And, and earlier in our conversation, you mentioned uh, COVID-19 and, and you know, in, in Malaysia, it's a pretty dire situation. You've got 20,000 cases per day. Uh, we talked earlier offline and, and you said that two thirds of the deaths that have happened in Malaysia have happened since June. So how much has, you know, the COVID situation played in the government's collapse? I think it's a significant part of why uh, the government eventually collapsed. Uh, the United Malays National Organization, which is the country's biggest political party, it ruled Malaysia from 1957 when it gained independence from Britain until 2018. Uh, and even though it was in the doldrums for a couple of years when it lost power in 2018, it's, it's now resurgent. And it was mindful of the fact that the party, Amno was mindful of the fact that Mohidin was losing ground because of the government's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. And Amno being part of that government wanted to, you know, keep some distance from, from that uh, incompetence. One of the reasons why people say that the government uh, is, is at fault for the state of play today, its decision last October to go ahead with a, a, a state election in Sabah, in Borneo. You know, uh, before that, the, the COVID situation was pretty okay. They had quelled a second wave of, of the health crisis and were looking at opening up the economy. But after that election, you know, there were people moving to and fro from Peninsular Malaysia to Sabah and, you know, politicians moving, uh, uh, you know, intensely. And... Uh, since then, the country has been in, in, in repeated rounds of lockdowns uh, and, you know, the economy has not been able to take off and uh, we've had campaigns where people are putting up white flags outside their homes because they are in need of food and, you know, their jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of jobs have been lost, uh, you know. So the economic situation is very bleak. There is no end in sight to the to the search, at least for the people in June, July, right? They didn't see the end in sight. The Muhyiddin government was promising a lot of things, but was not delivering. The gov the, his ministers were, you know, gaff prone, and you know, seemed to be more interested in 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 politicking and you know, uh, grandstanding. So I think all that played into. Amno deciding in the last few weeks to pull its support and collapse the government. Yeah, so so almost sounds like an episode of In the Thick of It. But I wanted to to turn to something on this podcast. We've talked a fair bit about the Malacca Strait. It's the gateway to the South China Sea. It's the maritime corridor for all trade to and from China. And there's you know a direct economic relationship between China and Malaysia that involving Belt and Road projects. But there's also been some tension recently. Back in June, we had the Malaysian government summon the Chinese ambassador uh, for, you know, a please explain meeting after 16 military planes flew into Malaysian-controlled airspace off Sarawak. So what's your gauge on the political mood in Malaysia regarding its relationship with China? I think regardless of the domestic political machinations, uh, in general, Malaysia's stance towards China has remained on an even keel in the last uh, in the last few years the the, the run-ins generally have to do with what's happening in the south china sea uh, malaysia of course is one of the claimants it is uh, an oil and gas producing nation and, and it has gas fields in the south china sea so it is very interested and and, and wary about its 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 sovereign rights 
over over the waters of uh, Sabah and Sarawak and Borneo. Uh, at the same time, as we know, China has been incredibly ins- uh, assertive in the area that it deems part of its sovereign waters, the, the so-called Nine Dash Line. And uh, the incident that you mentioned that t- took place on May 31st, where 16 transport planes uh, flew close to Malaysian airspace, really rattled Malaysia. They had they, Obviously, they demarchied the ambassador. But generally, because of Malaysia's economic reliance on China, they have employed a kind of even-handed approach uh, to dealing with the, the, the situation in the South China Sea, where they kind of divorce it from uh, the, uh, the rest of the bilateral relationship. And you will see this play out in, in, in the kind of comments that the foreign minister makes uh, about China. Uh, you know, regardless of who the foreign minister is and which party he comes from, I think they take a common line. I think this is like kind of what uh, local divi- political division stops at water's edge kind of mentality. Uh, sort of to get you a look in your crystal ball, do you see this, an election coming this year, or is this going to be sort of a caretaker government for the moment? Right now, Mohidin is the caretaker prime minister until Sultan Abdullah makes his decision on who should be the next prime minister. After today's meetings with the 114 MPs, he is expected to meet fellow sultans tomorrow, where he, it is believed that they will, you know, formally sanction uh, whoever is picked. So it is likely to be Ismail Sabri. And in that case, uh, Ismail Sabri might be uh, sworn in in the coming days. And that will be not a caretaker government. It will be a government that has the mandate to govern until the end of the electoral term. But it is very likely, and the Sultan has explicitly said so, that there should be an election after the pandemic abates. And observers believe that, uh, you know, it could take place sometime uh, in the first half of next year. So the, the expectation is that that election will put an end to the, you know, really ugly bickering that has been taking place in Malaysian politics for the last couple of years. Of course, you know, uh, Muhyiddin came to power through a political coup last year. And again, now his government has collapsed. And that's because of, you know, constant feuding between the various factions, political factions in the country. So the the hope is that a fresh elections will give whichever faction, you know, uh, a strong mandate and then they can put to rest the feuding. We'll, of course, be following your work on scmp.com. But as, uh, you know, we mentioned in the introduction, your Twitter feed is quite a source for new and breaking news about Southeast Asia. And people can follow you at J-B-H-A-V-A-N for the latest from you. So thanks for your time. Thank you. Before we go, I want to take you back to a previous episode of China Geopolitics. Now, just over a month ago, we had Joe Shin in the studio here. He was talking about China and Afghanistan. Now, regular listeners know he was a weekly fixture here on this podcast before moving across to the tech desk but he still carries with him deep background and knowledge about China's history and cultural relationship with Afghanistan. Here's a little bit of what he had to say back in an episode from July 9th. For China, Afghanistan is very uh, important in this uh, uh, geography. I mean, 
one of the key projects in the Belt and Road, uh, the China-Pakistan uh, economic corridor. You know, without a stable Afghanistan, you know, this basically will remain a pipe dream. Exactly like a gas pipeline I have mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, they always uh, think about this, uh, this great idea of Papi from Turkmenistan goes to Afghanistan and Pakistan to India. You know, India needs natural gas. Turkmenistan has the world's largest reserve of gas. But it can never be realized. Because of what? Because of there's war, there, there are no infrastructure, there are no security, no stability uh, along the way. So for China, it would be the same problem. So China will have to have to you know, ensure that there is uh, some kind of, at least some very basic level of uh, uh, stability and, uh, and the regional uh, certainty there so that it can uh, map out its uh, ambitious uh, projects of Belt and Road. Without that, it will be uh, it will be all, all about the problems and the troubles. You know, there will be no benefits for China. China's longest or the the the, the deepest uh, connection with Afghanistan is actually through Xuanzang, the monk in uh, in the Tang Dynasty. Uh, you know, this is also the base for the journey to the West when uh, Xuanzang was trying to uh, travel from Xi'an all the way to northern India to take back the Buddhism back to China, and then. Uh, there, of course, if you uh, this is a, this is a, like a household story in China, right? And then the monkey king, the pig, and uh, and also the, the the monster doing carrying carrying the uh, luggage. And if you walk into the uh, Chinese embassy in Kabul, the first thing you will see is this uh, uh, stone statues of these four uh, mystical figures, the, the monk Xuanzang, the monkey king. And you can see, you know, China uh, in culture or even in, uh, deeply psychologically, you see as kind of uh, exotic place that is far, far away from us, but we can actually do some travel, do some trade. So this is this will be uh, the foundation, I think, the cultural background for China's policies uh, in, in, in the future. There's a lot more to come on the Afghanistan story. Just how the Taliban are going to fund the reconstruction of the country now that the U.S. has frozen almost $10 billion worth of Afghan central bank reserves. If you think about it, their only viable cash crop is opium poppies, which are then turned into heroin, raising serious questions not just for the West, but for China as well. And of course, by the time you hear this, we have heard confirmation of how Malaysia's king has intervened to solve the political crisis of that nation. And of course, you'll be able to read the latest on that on scmp.com, if you haven't read it first on Bavan's Twitter feed. And while we've been talking about the U.S. retreat from Central Asia, the U.S. is making a different push, a diplomatic push, through Southeast Asia. Vice President Kamala Harris will land in Singapore this Sunday, before she visits Vietnam. The symbolism of that will not be lost on commentators and political analysts alike. That's bound to feature in the news agenda next week. Keep up to date with the latest via the SEMP Political Economy team on Twitter, at SEMP Economy. I'm at Chad Bray. I'm also Chad Bray. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Bye for now. Bye for now.